How did the Jewish people become a nation? Did Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph have any say in being the Founding Fathers? Or were they just predestined to do all that they did? And what about us? What is God in control of and what are we responsible for? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pren and welcome to Bible 805 where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these questions and more in our lesson today. From a person to a people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Plus, we're going to have a discussion of God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. So let's get started. There's so much more going on in what I'm going to be telling you about than what's first apparent. This isn't just a retelling of Bible stories that you may have heard growing up about Joseph in his coat of many colors, Jacob and the angels, the family of Jacob moving to Egypt and later becoming enslaved there. We're going to step back and look at the story of how from one man there became a nation of God's chosen people to whom he would give his word and eventually from whom the Messiah would come. In doing this, we're also going to be looking at the interplay between the sovereignty of God, where he's in control of everything, and human free will, where we're free to make choices. We'll attempt to understand how God being in charge of everything fits in with the choices that we make. We're going to explore also if our choices are truly free or if our every action is determined kind of like a puppet's is. Now let's review and overview what we're going to talk about. First, First of all, the first part of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, there were four major events that involved all of humanity. We have creation, we have the fall, we have the flood, and the confusion of language at Babel. At the Tower of Babel, not only were the languages were confused, but people were scattered throughout the earth. Then in the second part of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50, we narrow all of humanity down to one family. We begin with the individual Abraham, then his son Isaac, then Jacob, and then all of his family goes down to Egypt. But the main character in this part of the story is his son Joseph. Now, one more introductory comment before we get into this lesson. Please remember during this and all of the lessons that God's focus on Israel doesn't mean he's forgetting the rest of humanity. The remainder of the Old Testament focuses on the nation of Israel, which we will see formed in this lesson. But that does not mean God doesn't care about or is not working in the rest of the world. We saw how Job, who was not a Jew, was commended for his faith in God. We saw Melchizedek, who is called priest of the Most High God, and we really don't know where he came from, or, well, in Hebrews it says we don't know where he came from. Um, it's We really don't know that much about him, but we know God was at work, and he blessed Abraham. There will be stories throughout the Old Testament, just little hints here and there, about those outside the Jewish faith who came to know the true God, or who already knew him. Romans 1 also reiterates that all people innately know about God and are accountable to him. But to tell the Bible story clearly to all the world, even though God was involved in all of it, he narrows his story that he gives us in the Bible down to one people, and that's what we're going to focus on, this narrowing down in this lesson. Now, to help us understand the connection between God's sovereignty and human will, we need to understand 
all the stories in the Bible actually have two plot lines. They have the same destination, but different paths to get there. Now, to illustrate it, I want you to picture in your mind, there's two different, the two pathways. There's what I call line number one. This is God's plan, which is ultimately salvation for all the earth, for all of his creation. Now, picture that as just a straight line. No jogs in it, no anything. A straight line. That's God's plan. However, he uses humans to carry out that plan. And I want you to think of that as squiggles and squiggles and squiggles. And it, it takes detours and then it comes back and then it goes here and it goes there. And just this really scribbly line. Now they both get to the same place. It both is what God wants to happen, but he does give us a lot of free will in the middle of that. Now, the way that those two lines work together, and I want to credit Rick Warren for this analogy. I don't know if it was original with him, but I, I heard him talk about it on one of his tapes. And um, uh, this, to me, just illustrates it so well. And I'm going to use this analogy throughout the lesson. And that is that God's overall plan is like an ocean liner. The direction is certain. The route is set. The captain is in charge. It's his ship, his word is law. But within the ship, the passengers, which are us, obviously the captain's God, um, the passengers are given quite a bit of freedom. Individual actions do not affect the destination. That's determined by the captain. However, our individual decisions greatly affect the traveler's time on the ship. There's a crew with assigned tasks, and if they don't do things, if they don't do what they're assigned to do, things don't go well. Also, each passenger is responsible for his or her actions, his or, to, his or her attitude, and based on that, what they get or don't get out of the trip. You see, there's individual freedom, but it makes a big difference if you're a helpful part of the crew or a pleasant passenger, if you're a dead weight, a bore, or somebody that gets thrown in the brig because your actions were just unacceptable. The passengers, no matter what they do, in a good way or a bad way, they don't change the destination of the ship. But their actions greatly affect their experience of the journey and often the experience of those around them. And that's what you're going to see with all of the different people that will be studying. God's plan moves in a direction, but different ones act in different ways that cause different consequences. And I'll, I'll bring these up and I'll also suggest applications as we go along. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but it is useful. God will work out his plan of salvation for the world. That's the destination of what we might call ocean liner earth. He chose a people, Israel in the Old Testament, you might say as his crew, with responsibilities. They were entrusted with his word. It was spoken by his prophets, verified by signs and prophecies, recorded and passed down faithfully. They modeled his worship, which we will see formed in our next section of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. They were to be his witness. When they followed orders, which he clearly spelled out, they were blessed. When they didn't, they were disciplined. And this whole process of what happens when they follow what God's commands, what his covenant is, and then what happens when they don't, that's the plot line of the rest of the Old Testament. 
Now watch as we go through these how both plot lines intertwine. There are lots of crazy detours and corrections, storms and times of calm, but ultimately looking ahead when the time is right, the prophesied Savior will come into the world. Now where our story happens. Abraham is now settled in the land of Canaan. Now never forget the importance of true history taking place in identifiable geography. You can still visit all of the places we talk about today that the places where all of these things happen that I'm going to be talking about in the lesson. They're real places. Now there's a reason that our Bible has maps. Don't take that for granted. Many religions do not have maps, but our religion, the Christian religion, all of the stuff in the Old Testament, it's true history that happened in real places. Now, the characters who formed God's chosen people. The founding fathers of the Jewish people are often described in summary as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let's do a quick review of Abraham's life. Abraham moved to Canaan from Ur, which was a very rich, urban, but very sinful city. He trusted God for his son, though it took 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. He goes through many trials, some successful, some failures, as we all do, but he later passed God's biggest test to sacrifice Isaac. He was declared righteous because he believed God and he acted on that belief. Sarah dies. Abraham buys the cave of Machpelah for a burial place. Abraham then marries Keturah, and by her, he had other sons. He gave them gifts and sent them away. Now, one of them was Midian, and we hear a lot more about him in the Bible. So I'm going to talk about him for just a few minutes because it's kind of an interesting story. Midian was where Moses fled to from Egypt. It was also where God spoke to him out of the burning bush. His wife was from there. His father was called either Jethro or Ruel, in different ones in different translations, and that means friend of God. He was also called a priest of Midian, and he's also described as a Kenite, which is a sub-tribe of Midian. In Exodus 8-9, it says this about him, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He counsels Moses to train other leaders, and then his son, Hobab, serves as a guide for Israel through the wilderness. Now later, a group of Midianites with the Moabites unfortunately turn on Israel, and they hire Balaam to curse them and tempt them to commit immorality. From there on, as an entire group, they're enemies with Israel. During the time of Judges, they were people that Gideon defeated. Now, a smaller portion, though, of the Midianites, this is the same group that um, Jethro was part of, the Kenites were always friends with Israel. Uh, Jael was a Kenite who killed Sisera, who was a Midianite general, after the battle with Barak and Deborah. And later, when God told Saul to destroy the Amalekites, the Kenites apparently lived near them, and they were told to move away by God, which they did. So it's just kind of an in interesting story of one of Abraham's other children. Now, application. Pay 
attention to some of the smaller stories in the Bible. If you don't, trace some of the different people and things like that. If you don't do that, you really miss seeing God's care throughout the ages with different people. Now back to the main story. Abraham knew Isaac was the son of promise. In Genesis 17, he'd been told, My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you. So after, or in the midst of sending the other sons away, we don't know exactly how this happened, but Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for his son back to his family near Haran. The servant asks for God's help, and then Rebekah appears and offers to water his camels. The servant asks that she return with him. Her father and brothers see his wealth, and she agrees to go. Now, her brother's Laban, which will be her son's future father-in-law, but of course nobody knows that at the time. Now, an application here, and... Let me just say, too, whenever I talk about applications, I'm telling you how you need to behave on God's ship. (laughs) Um, That's what I'm talking about on the applications, because you can either do things that are pleasing to God, that will make your journey much better, that will um, uh, be better for you, better for those around you, or not. So whenever there's opportunities from Bible characters for us to learn something from them, I will try to point these things out to you. Now, in this instance, Rebecca goes from being a shepherdess with nothing special in her life. She leaves to become the wife of a very wealthy man who would love her greatly, and she will become the mother of a great nation. Now, it all started with a simple act of kindness to a stranger. And the application here is always do your best, even in quote-unquote little things, because you you never know who might be watching or what it might lead to. Not only in the story in the Old Testament, but remember at the last judgment in Matthew 25, when, when Jesus gives us a picture of this, he says to those commended by God, he said, I was thirsty. It was just a simple thing. And you gave me a drink. Well, things are seldom little or simple to the one receiving them. And they are a very big deal to God. And Jesus promises an eternal reward for those who do these acts of kindness. But now let's focus on Isaac for a minute. We know the least about him of any of the patriarchs. He was married when he was 40, but again, this test of infertility for 20 years, no children. But to their credit, Isaac and Rebekah did not attempt the solution of Hagar. Finally, Rebekah becomes pregnant, and it says that the babies jostled each other in her womb. And when she asks why, God gives her this very clear message where he says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The younger shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, when God says something, he doesn't change his mind. And we need to remember that. They were very different children. It says that Esau was hairy. He loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. He was his father's favorite. Jacob obviously was his mother's favorite. He liked to cook. Now, one day, big significant story, Esau comes home hungry and he sells his birthright to Jacob for some stew. The Bible says that Esau despised his birthright. He didn't think anything of it. He just wanted something to eat. 
Now the application here. Esau is an example of a really bad decision because some things done impulsively cannot be undone. In Hebrews 12, 15 through 17, it says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, forgiveness is always possible. But decisions have consequences. Later, when the children of Israel refuse at first to go into the promised land, they were forgiven, but they still had to wander for 40 years. Now, we're not helpless in the view of temptation because we have another example on how to fight temptation. And that, of course, is in Jesus. In Matthew 4, it tells us, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus wasn't just hungry. He was starving. And I read somewhere, and I'm sorry I don't have the citation, but where it says when you are starving, you can feel your body consuming itself. He was in agony. And C.S. Lewis says that we really don't know the limits of temptation because we haven't resisted to the utmost like Jesus did. He said most of us give in far too soon. We don't really know what true temptation is. But the application here is don't focus on your hunger, whatever it might be, but try really hard to think about God's word to apply that to your situation. Now, with Isaac then moving along in God's covenant, Abraham apparently told him about God's promise because he didn't get it personally for a long time. God's promise to Isaac didn't come until a time of testing when there is famine in the land. It was as bad as the famine during the time of Abraham. And Isaac goes to Gerar, wherever that is, it's kind of down south and more towards the coast, actually. And he went down to um, live in the area of the king of Abimelech, who was king of the Philistines. Now, what happens is God then appears to him and says, don't go down to Egypt. Stay where I tell you. Stay here in this land, and I'll be with you and bless you. I'm giving you and your children all these lands, fulfilling the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I'll make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and give them all these lands. All the nations of the earth will get a blessing for themselves through your descendants. And why? Because Abraham obeyed my summons, and kept my charge, my commandments, my guidelines, and my teaching. So he stays there. He stays put there in Gerar. But like father, like son, sadly, he sinned by telling the king that Rebekah was his sister. 
But once again, God rescues her and they go on their way. Now he lives a relatively uneventful life. He digs a well, he gets chased from it, he does it again. This happens several times. He makes peace each time and he is apparently a very peaceful man. The boys grow up. Esau marries two pagan women, and it does not go well. It says that they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now it's time to bless the oldest son, and he wants to bless Esau. Isaac asks Esau to bring him a meal so that he can give him his blessing. But God told him not to do that because Jacob was to be the preeminent son. Jacob, with his mother's help, steals this blessing. And before we get into the specifics you need the, of the blessings themselves, you need to understand the nature of blessings and curses in the Bible. This is really, really important because particularly in the passage at the end of Genesis in chapter 49, there's a section titled Isaac blesses his son. Now that actually isn't in the biblical manuscript. It's in it's a heading in the NIV. Why they put that in there, I do not know, uh, because it isn't in the text. But that section is also often referred to as Isaac blesses his sons. But then it goes on to say some pretty awful things about different ones of them. And we need to understand the full meaning of the idea of pronouncing a blessing in the Bible. Most times when the word blessing is used in the Bible, it has the idea of happy things, good things, what we call blessings coming. Now, it also, though, has the idea in some passages and the one in the blessings that actually that uh, Isaac's going to give his two sons and the one at the end of Genesis are more the idea of prophecy of something good that will come in the future or sometimes it isn't good but it is what will actually happen this person is speaking by the guidance of God on telling them what will happen now blessings are not um, spells that we cast over people. Some people almost have sort of in in some circles made them like this that you know you say this blessing and then it has to happen. Um, they're more like what one might call insightful prayers and that is particularly the case particularly the case if they're by biblical characters or it's just basically a spoken prophecy. A recorded blessing from God is a certain promise though in many things that God says, the timing to receive the blessing is not specified. In addition, some blessings are conditional. God does not bless behavior that goes against his word. Now keep this in mind when you read through things that are called blessings. Now let's look at Jake, I mean, excuse me, Isaac's blessings to Jacob and Esau. To Isaac, he said, May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Then to Esau, he later gives the quote-unquote blessing, Your dwelling will be away from earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from your off, from off your neck. Now back to Jacob. He flees to his uncle Laban in Haran. He stops on the way and has a most unusual dream with angels ascending and descending to heaven. God appears and gives him the covenant in Genesis 28, 13-15 where he promises him the land and that all people would be blessed through him and that God would watch over him and bring him back to the land. 
He goes to Laban. He falls in love with his daughter, Rachel. He works for her seven years. He's given Leah, actually, as his first wife, and then Rachel. And sadly, the same story uh, comes about. Leah has four sons, but Rachel, who is the most loved wife, is initially barren. So Rachel gives Jacob her maidservant, Bilhah. Leah gives him Zilpah, to have, and uh, he has children by both of the handmaidens, and both of the wives take credit for it. And then finally, Rachel has Joseph and later Benjamin. Now, it's not a happy family. And we don't know what God would have done if they hadn't decided to do it this way. But they do pay for it with a lot of, it seems like, family infighting and problems. But they were very wealthy. And finally, he takes his family back to Canaan. But before he arrives, he has another extraordinary encounter where he literally wrestles with God and he is given a new name, Israel, or Prince of God. Now, after settling back in Canaan, Joseph becomes his favorite son. Now, Joseph had a special calling from God, but instead of acting with humility, he knows he's going to be a leader someday and he brags about it and his brothers hate him for it. They sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites, who take him to Egypt. He was 16 or 17 when he was sold into Egypt. First, he's a slave in Potiphar's house, and then he's falsely accused and put into prison. We see a man of deep faith develop, who gives glory to God in his reactions and the interpretation of the dreams for the baker and the cupbearer. The baker is executed. The cupbearer goes back to serve Pharaoh and promises to remember Joseph and he forgets. Joseph has to wait two more years before his release. He was 30 years old, approximately, when he was made a ruler in Egypt. When he was 39, his brothers first come to Egypt, and he was probably 41 or so when his brothers come a second time, and Jacob then moves to Egypt with all of his family. He first, of course, puts the brothers through a number of tests for them to deal with and confess their sin, but finally, he says to them, after all of this has happened, he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Twisted evil actions brought this about, but God made good of it. They will stay in Egypt for 400 years. And you may be wondering, why was it okay for Israel to go to Egypt when they weren't supposed to go there before? Remember, though, that God had told Abraham that they would go there someday when he said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God gave Jacob permission to go to Egypt, where 66 people became about 3 million. They were isolated there. They did not intermarry or serve the Egyptian gods. And they were sort of protected, you might say, in some ways to grow into the nation. Our applications here are two. Number one, always listen for current directions. There are some things that are always wrong. But there are many things in our life that maybe the timing isn't right or the situation isn't right. And so we must always pray and ask for discernment and listen to God. Application number two. Being part of God's will will sometimes mean isolation. 
Noah, it says, God shut him in in the ark. Joseph, he was in prison. He was taken away. Moses lived by himself in away from his family, away from his people, um, in Midian for 40 years. Isolation, though, for the Lord's sake, often is a time of preparation and growth. So don't fight it. Um, Only God can tell you if your isolation is from Him, but He can use it in many wonderful ways. Before the end of Genesis, we have the listing of what is sometimes called Jacob's blessing, but it was really much more of a prophecy than what we think of as a blessing. It says in Genesis 49, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Here are some examples. Reuben, unstable as water, you shall not excel. By his crime of going to bed with one of his father's wives, he for forfeited his rights of being the firstborn. And his tribe, there was never any prominent figure, no judge, no prophet, no ruler, no anyone of real consequence came from the tribe of Reuben. And then um, he goes on and says, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty. I will scatter them in Israel. And that happened. Simeon was a very small tribe scattered around Israel. Levi, though, later was faithful in trials, and he became the, the uh, tribe of priests. And they were scattered throughout Israel. Dan, he said, will judge his people. And Samson was a judge from the tribe of Dan. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. This tribe had a reputation for fierceness. Ehud, one of the judges, Saul, and Paul were all of the tribe of Benjamin. And Judah, of course, he says of him, You are he whom your brothers will praise as a lion. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. To him shall be the obedience of the people until Shiloh comes. And this is taken, of course, as a prophecy of Jesus coming. And we know that Jesus is the descendant of Judah, the Lion of Judah from the tribe of Judah. And all of the uh, these and the other blessings slash prophecies about his sons came true. Sort of an extended application here. When you understand that blessings can also be prophecies, I trust that this will give you a new idea when you read the the Beatitudes because they've always been kind of a problem to me because what they describe just doesn't seem to be true. Um, For example, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. I don't see too many meek people in places of power today. But when we see it in the light of the Old Testament uses of blessing, when we see them in terms of prophecy, they make much more sense. As the blessings, quote-unquote, of the patriarchs came true for their descendants, so we can trust the truth of this coming reality of the Beatitudes to us as we work to incorporate these characteristics into our lives. So now, reread the Beatitudes and think of them in this way of Jesus saying his blessing over over you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God.
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Have hope. This may not be your present reality, and it probably isn't. You may be very merciful, and people might still be really mean to you. But the truth of these Beatitudes will come. This is Jesus' prophecy, His blessing on your life. You're His child, and His words can be trusted. And so, as we end this, the ship of God's plan has completed one part of the journey. From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, now it has become a nation. Sometimes they did great things, sometimes very bad things. They were tested, blessed, suffered and rejoiced, sometimes because of their actions, sometimes because God gave them blessings or trials. As Hebrews 11 puts it, though, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. None of them could see the whole plan, but they trusted God and His will was accomplished. Now on the balance, as we look at the balance of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, the patriarchs are men we honor, but their lives were far from smooth sailing, and usually their problems were caused by what they did. Abraham brought untold misery into his family and down to the wars of today by not waiting on God and having a child by Hagar. Isaac caused strife between his sons by not obeying God's decision on who would be first from the time the boys were born and attempting to make a son first who God had rejected. Joseph acted arrogantly. His brothers sinned terribly by selling him as a slave. Yet no matter how much they might have messed up on the decks, you might say, God remained the captain of the ship and had traveled forward to his destination. The family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made it safely to Egypt where they would grow into a great nation because God never let go of the helm. Now, as we look at their lives, where are you on your journey? Maybe you're having a great time and the trip is going great. Perhaps you're a little seasick. Perhaps you're just tired of the journey. Maybe you're working hard below the decks when it seems like others do nothing but lounge in the sun. Maybe your voyage is pleasant. Perhaps it's sad, but wherever you are, if you're alive, your journey isn't over. The journey may toss us around, and the waves may terrify us, but our captain can be trusted, and whatever task he wants us to do, he will help us accomplish them. I want to read you one final story. Um, It came from some anonymous source, but I hope it will encourage you. Here goes. An old missionary had spent his life laboring in obscurity in the jungles of distant Africa. He'd buried the love of his life there and both of his children. He was now returning back to his beloved America, to a land that now was just a distant memory. All his family and the friends of his childhood had long preceded him in death. His health was broken as the old man of God boarded a steamer coming home for the final time. 
As fate would decree on the same ocean liner was a world-famous celebrity with his entourage. As the massive ship entered New York Harbor and sailed past the Statue of Liberty, the sound of bands playing could be heard and the noise of thousands of people at the dock to welcome home this famous star of screen and stage. As the ship docked, ticker tape filled the air. Music and shouts were loud and boisterous. Soon the star had left the ship and the parade followed him down the street. As the old missionary gathered his personal belongings and walked down the gangplank, not one person was there to meet him. As a tear trickled down his face, the old man of God looked to heaven, and in a voice of dejection he said, Lord, after all these years of faithful service, could you not have sent just one person to welcome me home? From the battlements of heaven, a voice spoke softly in reply, You see, my son, that is the point. You are not home yet. If you're listening to this, your ship is not at its home port. You are not home yet. But you will be one day. And what a celebration that will be. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.